right, off the off the premise that what we're doing is not only reliable or consistent and valid, we're looking towards actually reaching some sort of relevance to what we're doing. Let's get into actually a screen. Now, this is what I do, and I want to give context as to why. When I look at any client or athlete, it's essentially looking at them as a blank slate. And it's important to do this because any preconceived notion that I might have off of what they what they like to do or what they, without any context, need to do really is unfair to the training program. And this creates a lot of... this. This needs to have a lot of discipline because you're going to fall into this loop of if you don't look at everyone like a unique individual that has their own pretense of what they can and can't do, you're going to start to make premature conclusions as to what you should do. That's not training. That's just basically checking a box off of what is what is it that you like to do or what is that you feel is going to make the most impact? And this is a very important note. And this is something that unless you understand the context as to why a screen needs to be in place, that you're never going to have as an effective a training program as you possibly could. Eventually, the rubber's got to hit the road and you got to start doing stuff and you got to start hitting the ground with training programs that are challenging, efficient, organized, compelling, interesting. But in the other end of the spectrum, if it isn't built off the context of what that person can do, then you really have a program that's not really effective. As you start to establish the foundation of training programs, the first step is to understand is what that person can and can't do. It's fractal. Simple rules repeated, meaning that what we can't do on a microscopic level will be true at a macroscopic level. What we can do at a microscopic level will have at least the potential to be true at a macroscopic level. And we look at it from a joint perspective. If one joint's in pain, that means the entire movement is in pain. Right, So if I have knee pain and I'm doing a multi-joint movement that requires dorsiflexion, knee flexion, hip flexion, it doesn't matter if I have more or less dorsiflexion or more or less hip flexion. What matters is that knee pain will be the biggest limiting factor. That we have now, we've now taken a joint that is incapable of moving without some sort of pain and ask it to move with other joints, same will be true. It doesn't change that simple fact. Same thing with reduced reduction in range of motion. That a isolated joint range of motion, and there's really, let's look from the hip and shoulder out, what is their IR, ER capability or internal external rotation? What's their flexor and extension capability? What's their ab and adduction capability? And we're not even looking at that integrated wise, right? Because if we look at like a functional movement screen, uh, shoulder mobility screen, and we look at that from a combination of a flexion, uh, 
flexion or extension combined with ab or adduction combined with internal external rotation. Right, so you can see the image, like the infinity circle looking position that you do with the shoulder mobility screen on that. You're integrating a multiple direction input and trying to assess where the reduction in range of motion is. Right, all you know is if they can or can't get within one hand, one hand's length distance between each other. If not, that's all it is, like probably have some sort of restriction in range of motion of the shoulder, or the other end, maybe potentially have some sort of some sort of compensation. Um, we don't know. We got to just figure out what we can't do from there. Versus doing a table test, looking at shoulder mobility. Like, all right, let me look at shoulder internal external rotation. Let me look at shoulder abduction adduction. Let me look at shoulder flexion extension. You can further extrapolate out why you potentially might not have that shoulder mobility screen. But again, if I don't have that prerequisite range of motion from shoulder or hip in terms of IR, ER, ab adduction, flex extension, then I probably won't have that when I try to integrate that into a multiple, multiple joint movement pattern that I'm trying to organize within three dimensions. Right, and that's something to think about. Because whatever reduction I have in range of motion, relatively speaking to relatively speaking to the other planes or vectors that joint can move in, it's going to impact that movement pattern negatively. And we can make a loose, but we can make a connection to reductions in potentially range of motion off of the hip and shoulder, relatively speaking, to integrating that in a movement plane or a movement pattern that's trying to organize itself in multiple planes, right? So if they lack... If the hip lacks internal rotation, which is very common, then we can start to see how that negatively impacts a squat pattern. Because as we start to squat down and that pelvis starts to counter nutate, and we get into this anterior pelvic tilt, we're going to require some sort of movement of the femur in that hip capsule. And if it can't move internal rotation-wise, your typical best strategy to, to accommodate that is to widen your stance out and get more into externally rotated position. That might sound counterintuitive, but the truth is, is you create some sort of, some sort of position, some sort of amendment, some sort of adjustment to allow or facilitate reaching that movement outcome below parallel, hamstring to calf, chest up, et cetera, et cetera. It might have been completely for not if we just evaluated hip internal rotation and see if we need to use a slant board. But that's the kind of key here why we need to have some sort of movement screen to go, okay, they lack hip internal rotation. So squat patterns might be a little bit more challenging. So I need to either one, address that directly by doing hip internal rotation, flexibility, mobility work, or two, create some sort of lateralization of looking at that squat pattern to accommodate them pushing the threshold. It's chicken or the egg. I'm not really concerned about the training program just yet. And I'm not really trying to create any kind of correction. I just want to go over what we need to know to know what to do.
And the most important one would be pain, right? And we'll go through this a lot, but the truth is, is we can start from the end, we can start from the beginning, we can start from breaking out into individual parts, we can start from looking at it from, if I wanted to do these correlated exercises, what information do I need to know? And so to build out a screen to re represent that and reflect that. And the direction that we need to understand is predicated off of, really, what are we going towards? Right, where are we going? Right? Remember we talked about the difference between strength conditioning and physical therapy movement screen is we're going from something with physical therapy in a clinic, clinical setting, we're going towards something in a strength conditioning or performance setting. What are we going towards? I'm of the general consensus that we need to run faster, jump higher or further, or throw something faster or heavier. Because I think that is a true, perfect laggard indicator of what your program is or isn't. Because if we're running faster, it doesn't really matter if what you did. To me, in my opinion. Results talk. You know, the, the old adage of, in God we trust, all others must bring data. Like that, that is what we're trying to accomplish here, right? The, the idea, the pretense, the, the notion that performance training needs to correspond directly to more aggregate or more comprehensive testing and if we're not running faster or jumping higher or further or throwing something faster or further honestly your program sucks now for me to be able to make that assertion when you're starting to say well look at all the performance gains i did with these exercises these correlate exercises for what well, at what point what does it matter did it manifest into something better it didn't correspond to things that correspond to performance Tough pill to swallow, but I don't care what you clean or squat or bench, like you really don't. Doesn't matter, relatively speaking, the things that actually correspond to performance. And the only way we really know that and know what exercises are good or not is predicated off of that and predicated off the idea that we need to hold ourselves to this incredibly high standard. So we're moving towards corresponding things like running, jumping, and throwing. We're not moving away from being a pain or surgery, rehabilitation. And we carpet-metalize certain aspects. We're trying to tease out anything that might be painful. Simple diagnostic or screen, does it hurt? Do you feel comfortable doing this? Looking at, from my perspective, and this might again seem paradoxical because I like to look at the movement aspect and then whittle it down to the, the more nuance things, and I'll explain why, a movement competency screen, like a functional movement screen. And then I like to break it down into, okay, the movement screen wasn't there. I got to figure out a little bit more information. So I have a little bit more context as to why. And I do more table tests or potentially something like an infrasternal angle test. And the, and the element is I have to design movement screens for a lot of people not only from who I'm screening, but who is actually screening. That I have hundreds and hundreds of people that I'm screening on a daily, weekly basis. I have dozens of people screening people on a daily and weekly basis. The reliability component, which you talked about in principles, is critical here. It might be different in your setting. You might be one-on-one, -on -one, and you might want to reverse that. 
let me go from out to from the bottom up or I look at it from the table test to the floor. That's completely fine. And we talked about there's got to be some sort of nuance and difference between a one-on-one versus a group setting. Talked about we need to look at it from the difference from a clinical to performance setting. Talked about it from the context that we need to be reliable. So it doesn't really matter what you do as long as you're consistent with it. And that's important here. That's really important. Talked about it from two of the logistics and the time it might take to actually do that. So you're looking at the module right now. Go down to that risk assessment. We want to see what is the actual risk appraisal. And we want to do that in a very consistent and expedient manner. I think the easiest question to ask anybody is, are you currently in pain? Does anything hurt? Chances are, if you're working with athletic populations, they will tell you no. Even if they are. It's a badge of honor to not show weakness. And that's why you got to dig a little bit and you got to be able to you know, prod and, and poke and see if there's some sort of some sort of provocation when you start to do certain things. And then you make a note. And this is where, again, you need to be really disciplined. Your scope or your clinical, your clinical ability to diagnose is simply not there and nor should it be. Again, I'm giving you permission to do the cool stuff. So once you find pain, you don't try to digest and understand. You just simply say, what I can't do. Oh, it hurts when I do that? Don't do that. A lot of times it's how you phrase or preface the question. Do you have any pain, injuries, or surgeries that I should know about? And don't give them a specific timeline. Because that will be really important down the road. We like to give a six-month window because it's really relevant. But the other side of it, too, is... Someone who had a fused vertebrae surgery five years ago might not be currently in pain. Someone that has a torn rotator cuff that has a cortisone shot might not actually be in pain. Someone that tore their hamstring off the bone and surgically reattached it and is associating the hamstring doesn't feel like crap right now, but that I have a I have a preconceived notion when someone asks me that question. So therefore, I am not in pain in my hamstring, but oh, by the way, I have sciatica now and that hurts a lot, right? So they're thinking automatically, well, like he's probably asking about the hamstring because I had some walking with a limp, but that doesn't hurt right now. But my back is killing me, but I'm not really thinking about that. So I'm going to answer, no, I'm not in pain. And this is... This is really, really important to kind of establish that. And then I'm going to go through the next level of looking at force plates or Nordics. And we utilize Vault, uh, Force Deck, Nordboard, and I get that's an expensive tool. So not everyone can have access to that. But the reason why is because it's the best diagnostic with lower human error element you can find on the market. And when I see someone with left-right asymmetry on when they jump, it means that they have a higher risk profile for injury. I'm going to go all the way back to the functional movement screen, looking at asymmetries during five of the actual screens, right? So if you look at the seven screens, five of which are asymmetrical, meaning that they're one leg or one arm at a time. And if you have an asymmetry, and it's hierarchical, but we look at it from shoulder mobility to active straight leg raise, and I'll go through this again, that we have a higher risk for injury. 
And think about it. Think about it from the context of not only just from a performance setting, right? Like if we're going out there, open, chaotic, not really predictable environments, and you're moving with sort of like a, a flat tire, so to speak, what is that going to lead to? It's going to lead to soft tissue injuries. It could lead to some sort of non-contact related injury. Because you're just moving with, with a little different skill, right? We see it all the time. Pitchers ask us when they start to sprint to first, to cover first, they get a hamstring. Because they're just so asymmetrical from just pushing off that one, that drive leg or absorbing with their, with their contact leg. See with long jumpers, we see it with, or high jumpers, we see it with, with golfers. It's like they're just basically ticking time bombs to get hurt. Where we see it though too in terms of training, training's redundant. As much as I like to say my, pro- my program's extremely comprehensive and all-encompassing and I'm gonna be multi-planer, multi-vector and loading up that athlete as much as I possibly can, with as much variance as I possibly can, the truth is there's going to be some sort of Pareto-like principle of I'm going to do things that are going to have a bigger net return more so, right? That I look at, of the 100 things I can do, 20% of that is going to make a bigger net impact than the other 80, so I'm going to lean on that 80, and I'm going to do that quite a bit, and I'm going to push it to threshold really high. As soon as I find out what I can do and what I need to do, I don't waste any time. I do that excessively. Because that's for me. That's what I've built my entire training philosophy around. Right? It's the whole bet on roulette. I know there's a magnet under 32. I'm not spreading my chips. I'm putting it all on 32. I'm letting it ride. Same thing when I look at training programs. I know this has a higher correlate than other things. I don't waste any time. But with that comes is the connotation that I need to know that I have the foundation from a lack of pain, symmetry, and, and without compensation. Because once I know that, all bets are off. Let it rip. Go for it. Because that's going to have the biggest net impact. That while other people are trying to dilute their investments, I know that I got a blue chip stock that I have insider trading information on, that I've basically stacked the deck Right? You have insider trading information about Apple in 1980 when you do a good screen. And you know what you need to do to have a high correlate to success. Right? And this is why that performance testing. I know it's going to make me faster. I know it's going to make me jump higher. I know it's going to make me throw further. I know that because I've tested that. I know it has a high correlate. The only thing I don't know is how they're going to respond to that based off of pain, symmetry, or compensation. That's what i got to figure out. Because as soon as I know those three variables are no longer a limiting factor, I have the best program in the history of human, in the human world. That's it. That is the God honest truth. That is my secret sauce. You guys now know it. Go to work. That is why it makes me exceptional, relatively speaking, to anyone else. What I know about how to screen and what I know it actually correlates is what makes me different, what makes me an elite level trainer. And it's my discipline to stay within those two parameters and have confidence in my plan. Because I also have that, that willingness to screen and stay reliable with it. So the message there is don't waste your time with stuff that doesn't really make an impact, but know, what makes an, know how much of an impact that can actually make by knowing what the screen allows for you to be able to do. And that's where force plates come in. If they have some sort of symmetry when they're just jumping, Asymmetry when they're jumping, probably a problem. 
Now, what we see a lot within our setting is a lot of people kind of don't really give a great effort in terms of jumping. And the truth is that that is contingent upon the effort they give. So they give maximal effort, you got a good screen, you know. And you know what? I'll tell you, once out of probably every 10 people, I find some really big asymmetry. It's like an anomaly, red flag, and our number is 15% and above. Strikes up a really important conversation. Everything going on there. And I can't tell you how many times I've had this conversation with people. 20 to 30% asymmetry when they jump. Right after I ask them, are you in pain? Did you have any surgeries? Is there anything else going on that I should know about that might impact? Do you feel comfortable jumping? No pain, I feel comfortable jumping. 30% asymmetry on all three jumps. Hey, you had a pretty big shift to your right. Anything going on your left means they're favoring their left. Oh yeah, tore my, tore my meniscus off the bone or I had, uh, I had tore my hamstring or oh, I have sciatica or yeah, I, I honestly, I play golf all the time and constantly have back pain. <laughs> and that's the stuff comes up and it's all it is. That's what I'm talking about, the, provo- the provocation assessment and looking at it from, looking at it from, if I have a great setup to my training, then all I know, or from my screen, all I need to know is how to set them up to answer it themselves. Like I didn't tell them that. I didn't force them to tell me that. They just told me it organically based off of what I found. And that information is critical, mission critical, right? Because that person who had tore their ACL off, or tore their meniscus off the bone, let's say I wanted to do really deep range of motion front squat with that person. And they're gonna be shifting all their weight to the right side over and over and over again. If they don't break down and get some sort of tendinopathy on that right side, they're definitely gonna get some sort of low back pain. Or they're gonna limit the amount they can actually get from the exercise from just basically pushing off one leg. Right? And what we find though is a lot of times they don't really give a great effort though. That's why the Nord board comes in or Nordic hamstring curl, eccentrically wise. And the other part from that for me is usually structural balance wise is another big assessment, right? So most people are going to be imbalanced pushing, relatively speaking, and pulling. Just is what it is, right? We're in seated postures. We typically only train what's in front. It is what it is. So not only looking at from a symmetry from left to right, but symmetry front to back. Chances are, if they have really, really, really weak Nordic, Nordic hamstring strength, like sub 300 for male and sub 200 for female, that's a risk factor. It's a great opportunity, but it's also a risk factor. But what we see on that one, specifically relatively speaking to force deck, is that there's a certain threshold that people will not give on the force plate, they have to give on the Nordic. So whatever we don't find from an asymmetry standpoint on force deck, we'll definitely find on that Nordic. We'll find it. It's mission critical that we find it because if we don't know that information and we start loading them up aggressively, then we start to run into some downstream issues. But right then and there, the screen can essentially stop right there. Pain and then some sort of movement, like a jump or a Nordic, that assesses either front to back or side to side symmetry, or lack thereof. And if there is, that has a significant impact on the rest of you do programming wise, right? This bilateral high correlate training program of squats and hinges, cleans and snatches, vertical or horizontal jumping is going to have a negative overall impact 
relatively speaking, to maybe a more unilateral approach or more isolation approach or figuring out what's going to actually fix that symmetry. But I still don't know 100%. So if I find an asymmetry on one of those things, I need to dive a little bit deeper. And then I want to look at a movement competency screen, like a functional movement screen. Seven screens looking at five asymmetrical screens and two bilateral screens with four breakouts or four really what they call clearing test, right? So deep squat, hurdle step, inline lunge, inline lunge now has an ankle clearing test. And I go into shoulder mobility and the shoulder mobility as a shoulder clearing test. Then I go into active straight leg raise, trunk stability push up with a trunk stability push up clearing test, aka lumbar. And then I look at it from the final one, rotary stability with a hip clearing test. And then boom, done. First thing you're looking for is pain or any zeros. Second thing you're looking for is asymmetry, specifically on shoulder mobility, active straight leg raise, and then progressing that out into the upper, the, the more primal stability patterns, trunk stability, push-up, and rotary stability, and then finally finishing up with the higher level patterns like deep squat, inline lunge, and hurdle step. And I would say inline lunge and hurdle step have a little bit more of a precedence, a precedence over deep squat because of the asymmetrical nature. So let's say that you find pain on any of that. Great, good information. Let's say that you find asymmetry without pain. Great, good information. Let's say you find no pain, no asymmetry. Great, good information. That's it, that's all it is, it's all good information. It's just good intel, right? 21 is the top score. If you get 14 and above without asymmetry or pain, really doesn't make any difference of 14 to 21. I can have twos across the board without pain, you're just as good as you would be with 21. And that's the difference. It's not a performance screen. It's not about trying to get a perfect score. It's about finding out where the risk factor is. But let's say that you do have some sort of, of a one in there, or let's say that you have an asymmetry, meaning that you have a left-right difference in the asymmetrical screens, or you can't do one of the movement patterns. That's when you start to look at the, the next level, the variability component, looking at the range of motion, and then how we control our thorax. So passive range of motion would be that flexibility. We talked about that in one of our modules. That, that length of the tissue. That's dictated by our nervous system. That our nervous system will stop before it actually gets there. So if we're looking at passive inputs, it's going to go into, I need to stop the downturn of that actual nervous system from blocking it, sending this reflexive system into this stoppage of range of motion. Right? That muscle spindle responds to stretch that gets lengthened the golgi tendon organ responds to ten, uh, tension so now i'm creating an adverse amount of tension or length and the muscle spindles blocking and the golgi tendon organ might actually start to be overactive and then boom next thing you know it's a blockage range of motion so if i have a passive restriction that's more nervous or neurological i need to decrease the neurological input stopping that range of motion but if i don't have that passive then I'm not going to have the active, which is more of the muscular or the mechanical, right? Can I have contractile strength to pull me into these positions or those ranges? Passive needs to be bigger than active and passive needs to precede active. And then I look at finally the infrasternal angle, which is that angle of my thorax while I breathe. So if my sternum lifts and my rib cage goes wide, we are what you call a wide sternal angle. If my sternum stays down and then my rib cage stays static, you wear a narrow infrasternal angle. 
And what means from there is really what happens at my pelvis. So the thorax and the pelvis react to each other. So if it's bottom up, the thorax will respond to the pelvis. So if I'm in a seated position, thorax has to move, relatively speaking, to wherever the pelvis is and vice versa. If I'm upright, bipedal or standing, then the, thorax, the pelvis responds to the thorax. Because we usually hold something in our hands when we're doing something. So if that sternum's lifting, that sternum in front is going up, usually means my rib cage is gonna go wide, that pelvis needs the anterior tilt and that sacrum needs to counter nutate, right? They're just gonna go inverted of each other, right? So the, the sacrum and the pelvis, or the sacrum and the sternum are the same thing. The pelvis and the rib cage are the same thing. So if I start to move my sternum and my rib cage, I'm gonna definitely have to move my pelvis and my, my sacrum. And that pelvis can abduct, adduct, it can anterior and, anterior and posterior tilt, it can go nutated, counter-nutated, relatively speaking to the sacrum. And the same thing with that sternum. And that sternum's kind of listed as a pump handle, and if you ever go to PRI stuff, you see that that has a big impact on, on what breathing postures to do, and, and we have this natural asymmetrical orientation between the lungs and the, the lungs, the heart and the liver, and everything is kind of shifted a little bit to your left. We're kind of in this wide, uh, this, this posture that we externally rotate the pelvis, and we have this lower shoulder on one side, specifically the right side, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But you can see how this could impact movement in a, in a profound way. And this is our variability assessment, right? So we've, we've assessed risk with pain, force plates and Nordics, and then functional movement screen. Because if I have pain, asymmetry, or compensation there, that risk during training is gonna be there. We assess the ability or variability to do those things without compensation or pain, or um, for, through a full range of motion, through these more table tests here. For me, once I find out there's no pain or if there's no asymmetry on force deck or, or the um, actual quick questionnaire, I got a lot of information to work off of. And I got 600 people, like I don't really need a whole lot more. And those are pretty standard and pretty easy to implement, right? It's a, it's a great risk appraisal. If I'm kind of uncertain, which we find that quite a bit, then I'll do a function movement screen, which is 15 minutes per person if you're good. Where it gets a little bit more technical, a little bit more important to evaluate is looking at that variability. And I, like anytime I have a, a client that's, hey, they want to really do private training and invest a little bit more time and energy and improving, great. If they have just, I just want to work out three days a week and I don't really have any goals, okay, I just need to know what's going to be a risk factor. But if they want to make these big substantial changes in a timely manner, then we have to get a little bit more information. And that's the key for me is, is all I'm trying to figure out is what I need to figure out in a timely manner to make the best decision possible to load up redundantly these high threshold strategies that can make a big net impact for running faster, jumping higher, or throwing something further, or in the other situation working with Gen Pop, just looking better, right? If you want to improve your body comp, it's going to be predicated off the amount of activity you can do. If you want to increase your muscle mass, again, it's going to be predicated off the amount of activity you can do. And if you can't do those activities because you have pain or if you have restriction or if you have some sort of compensation, you're going to be limited on that. And if you're working in a clinical setting, just reverse the direction on this, right? So you start with variability and pain or pain and variability and then work your way out all the way through the, the assessment in the opposite order. I mean, that's the key, guys. And that's why this, 
if you look at the graphic, it has arrows pointing in a bunch of different directions. Like that is so, so important to the overall premise off of, off of a good screen. Can you do it in a timely manner? Can you do it consistently? Is it valid or context dependent based off of what you want to do? Yes or no? Then go to work. So that, that's what we're gonna cover the screen here. I hope that helps here because this is something that if you've gone through all the modules, hopefully it just connects all these dots. Like it, it, I, that's my hope that it, you're just like, ah, it makes sense now. It really came together because this could be a big abstract mess unless you have some sort of like thing to connect everything together and make it cohesive, right? This, the web of coherence as Charlie Munger would talk about in models really doesn't make sense until you can see it all like mapped out and have a, some sort of connectivity to each other. So I hope that helps guys. I hope this is something that you're taking a lot of value from. Uh, just keep tr keep trucking away on these modules because they're going to make a big difference for you to be able to an excellent practitioner. All right, guys.